Welcome back to Trending Education. Dan Trafford, Mike Palmer along with you as we continue to celebrate Teacher Appreciation Week and National Teacher Day back on Tuesday, an extra edition of Trending in Education. And on today's interview episode, we're joined by Mark Sanders, a friend of the podcast. But Mark, if you could, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Uh, sure, Dan. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Mark Sanders and I teach philosophy at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Uh, I teach classes that uh, range, but especially I'm interested in civic en- engagement and citizenship and deliberative d- democracy are some topics that I that I teach a lot frequently about. That's great. And Mark, uh, glad to have you here. Overall, uh, a, a high level view of uh, the, the education landscape can take a long time. Talk about it for for. Uh, many, many an hour. But from your perspective, college landscape, uh, the the current state of education in your mind, and what you're what you're tackling each and every day. What's the biggest challenge for you as an educator at the college level currently? Uh, I guess the biggest challenge for me is to get students to care about civic uh, engagement. Uh, in some ways, I think it's a challenge to get anyone to care about civic engagement, but uh, especially students that, that I'm that I'm teaching. Uh, which is, and I, there are definitely students who are very interested in it, and some students get interested in it through the classes that they take with me. Uh, but by and large, it's a struggle for people to see the importance of civic engagement. It's also a struggle sometimes to get students to see the importance of class like philosophy or anything that they're taking in college that's not directly related to their major that they can then make money off later. So I think that's the biggest challenge for me personally. Yep. Hey, Mark, Mike Palmer here. How are you? I'm good, Mike. Good to, good to see you and hear you. Yeah, likewise. And you're uh, you're also uh, at Citizen Sanders, right? So if I refer to you as Citizen Sanders, like you'll respond to that? Is that correct? I, I, in this context, I will, yes. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so uh, one of the topics we've been covering um, increasingly on the show is the, is the idea of digital citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know you're, you're generally teaching classes face-to-face on campus. Yes. Um, but how much do, uh, do these, st- how students can engage civically through digital tools? How, how much is that something that, that you're talking about or, or addressing uh, in your classes or in your engagement with, uh, with your students? So it's something that I've talked a little bit about in a class that I used to teach, not much anymore, called ethical ethical issues um, in in technology. Mm-hmm. And that was actually an interesting class that um, we had an agreement with uh, computer science and software information system students. They all had to take that course, mm. um, and so we talked a lot about kind of, that was much more of an ethical angle, not necessarily a civic engagement, but an ethical angle uh, from both the perspective of uh, people, students who are using technology on a daily basis, but for the computer software uh, students, it was these are gonna be people that are working with and inventing new te- technologies and yep. to think about the ethical ramifications of what they're actually doing. Right. Uh, so that was one class uh, that, I've, that I've taught. What I'm interested in now, um, I teach a class on citizenship, and I'm just now part of a new um, group, and I'm going to get the title right, Digital Polarization, Promoting Online Civic Literacy, hmm. which is a new like pilot project that I just got involved with. And I would like to start using some of what they're talking about in my citizenship class. Basically, at this stage, it's trying to be, it's trying to use understand uh, technology and ways to be civically engaged and responsible. And so the notion of media literacy is just trying to figure out like how much can you trust certain sources? Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, 
Mike Caulfield is the person that gave the first webinar cool. um, about that. And so I would like to, I would like to take that and put it into my, into my classes. Yep. I don't, cause I, I'm not sure where students are uh, mm-hmm. on this, uh, how much they readily understand what sites are trustworthy and what sites are not and why. So I'm going to be using more of that um, in my classes. So it's still a face-to-face class, but I want to make more use of students on their own and even in groups using technology and reflecting on it. Yeah. And even uh, thinking about their identity as also their digital presence and their digital identity. And um, is that something that comes up like, you know, like social media, has that relates to uh, either civic engagement or sort of a philosophical take on, uh, on use of social media? Yeah, so there's definitely ethical issues about um, privacy, obviously, with social media, but also using social media as a conduit or um, to reach students, right? So, you know, what are students going to going to care about? How are they going to find 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 out about it? And it's it's become clear to me that the standard way for someone like me is through email. That's how you, you email someone, they respond, and that's not what students respond to. So. I don't think someone of my generation, whatever that is, um, doesn't need to kind of be chasing the latest Snapchat, Instagram, but needs to be a little bit con- conversant in what social media are. And then it then gets tricky though. I, I, you mentioned I'm on Twitter um, and that's kind of out there for anybody to follow me. On Facebook, I can kind of, I my, my rule is to not let any student be a friend of mine until they graduate. Right. Uh, and that's just some kind of boundary. So right. I have to, I have to be you know, cognizant of that. But I think it is important to understand like what students, where they're going to, to get their, 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 their news and mm-hmm. to find out ab- about things. Yeah. Because you can use the internet to find out about lots of things, but what are students using it for? Right. Uh, it's a question that I'm always concerned with in any of my, of my classes. And you've been teaching for, many years now right like on and off like i know you've i remember for a while you had like a like you know i've known you for years but there was a patrick swayze period right when you were bartending (laughs) while also uh also teaching philosophy i don't know how your kung fu was or how much you were breaking up uh uh, brawls exactly. Is but this I like Dirty that... Dancing Swayze, Roadhouse yeah. Swayze? This is Roadhouse, Roadhouse Swayze. Swayze. Okay. All right. Now, yeah. the analogy is not quite apt because of my recollection of that wonderful movie is that he was he had studied philosophy and then had kind of retired or whatever to become um, right at this Roadhouse. Wow. Someplace. I right. was doing both simultaneously. I was studying. Wow. Right. I was getting my my uh, no. So yeah, I was getting my PhD at the New School. I was adjuncting at St. John's. And I was bartending at uh, China Grill in right. uh, Midtown. Right. And um, you're still working on that screenplay, right? Because like, cause I think if we add some kung fu to it, I think it's it's a winner. But um, but but anyway, you've been so you've been you've been teaching for a long time. Yes. Have you know, like actually really right on through the digital re- uh, revolution? Yeah. Have you noticed changes to uh, attention levels or, you know, use of uh, cell phones in the class and and like what's it been like you know having been a teacher right on through that that period of time yeah so one one kind of way in which i'm an old grumpy you know 
um, teacher is that I just students just don't read the um, the syllabus. I know that's just like a blanket statement that I'm like the majority of students, good students, bad students, they they just don't read the syllabus. They require and now even the syllabus is up and updated online. So it's on. I've used Blackboard. Right? We now use Canvas, mm-hmm. and students have access to the the class page, and they still they require like 24 hour notice. <laughs> through an email or something before they know it. And I'm just, that infuriates me because I feel like that's something that they, if it's up online, they can be right. able to go and go and go check it. And that's just me being grumpy. But uh, I have um, changed a little bit in my attitude towards cell phones and laptops in the classroom. Um, I feel like I've had to adapt because at one point I was like, just no electronic devices at all in the class. I still, for the most part, try to say no cell phones. Mm-hmm. Um, there actually is now, um, something that people use at UNC Charlotte where you're supposed to use cell phones instead of clickers, you can Mm -hmm. actually, um, turn them on use that. I haven't used that. I'm sure I will at some point, but I let people use laptops or tablets because most of the readings for the classes are online and they can use that to, instead of printing up the actual readings, they can use that and they can use, and my only requirement is that they send me their class notes at the end of class Mm. uh, so that I can, so I don't worry. And that has not once I made that that kind of change, uh, I've found that students with their laptops or devices on are generally as um, uh, as aware of and paying attention as much as students who um, who aren't. I'm still a little iffy on the cell phone because it's much easier to be doing something on a cell phone. And I guess since I can't read something that's online on a cell phone, I don't I don't let my students do it. Uh, but so I definitely I've adapted to letting. Um, more digital devices, electronic devices in use, and I, and I incorporate them into the the class as much as, as much as I possibly can. And just to clarify, you teach you teach like freshmen at times, right? Like, oh, yeah, I teach everything from freshmen to seniors. I sometimes I teach. We have a small graduate uh, MA program in ethics and applied philosophy, and I've taught classes that are hybrid classes where upper level undergraduates and uh, MA students can, can take. I've, I've taught a couple of, of those classes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I teach upper level philosophy classes and I teach gen ed classes uh, where it's freshmen and, and sophomores. And any differences around like digital behavior uh, among those populations or outside of digital, just like um, like the, the level of conversation you can get into uh, around civics, like is it, does it, does it progress, you know, when you're dealing with say like, uh, you know, freshmen versus more senior students? It's not so much freshmen versus senior students. I think there's some of that. The more th- the, the, the clearer thing is if a student is in the class because they want to be or they need to be or have to be. Yeah. And so students that have taken up a philosophy class generally want to be there and are interested in the actual topic. Um, with, gen ed, with gen ed classes, it's because they're not knocking a box off. This is a writing intensive class. This is a required class. And they have to take it. So I like to teach the gen ed classes that it's a requirement for certain students. So the citizenship class that I, that I teach was a requirement for an urban youth and education minor. Mm. And so, and I guess, but not so the, the entire class is not those, but those students kind of stand out because they are kind of self selecting. They right. choose that minor. They want to take classes about civic engagement as it relates to, to, uh, to, to education. Right. Um, and so, those are, and the other students are in there like, this is some, this is my fourth, you know, gen ed class that I need to take. And sometimes they're reachable too, but they're the ones that it's, it's more of a, a challenge. Does, 
does that uh, speak to a bit of diversity and inclusion to an extent where you're getting this different mindset of students and uh, almost a challenge to you, but a challenge to the rest of the class to be inclusive and be, you know, a larger conversation amongst people who may not be as engaged on a specific topic? Yes, uh, absolutely. And that's one reason why sometimes I feel like I've already been doing it on this podcast. I've been complaining about these students. But part of why I like to, I don't want to just teach upper class, level class, even if I, if, I, if I could. I think it is important to, you know, to reach those students that are reluctant to care about the things that I think are important. So it's much more of a challenge to try to reach them. It's often frustrating, but it is important to kind of keep in practice of saying there's a bunch of people out there that don't think these things that I think are important are. And uh, so figuring out ways to try to reach them is crucial. It also helps to have some students who do see that so you don't get frustrated at all of the, uh, the time. But yeah, the, that, that inclusiveness is, is always important for me in academia in, in, in general to think about what matters in the world and not in your esoteric subject matter. Yeah, there's been a lot of research uh, lately. Adam Grant uh, has been someone I've been following around organizational psychology, uh, talking about how the groups that are the best problem solvers are typically a combination of psychologically safe and cognitively diverse. So like different different approaches to problem solving, different, that, that's sort of the, uh, the inclus- inclusivity diversity side, but then also you know fostering that sense of psychological safety. Um, that's been a real theme uh, in higher ed as well, right? It's like the idea of like, how do you have, how do you have an engaging conversation that's also, um, you know, safe and, uh, you know, particularly in the last year and a half um, since the election in 2016, uh, right on through into, uh, you know, Parkland this year. It's been a really interesting time, I imagine, to, uh, to engage, um the the emerging generation, I guess, uh, typically called Generation Z. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that been like? I mean, especially doing civics around you know the 2016 election, and then continuing to have those types of conversations uh, through through some of the polarization we've seen over the last year and a half or so. Uh, actually, probably longer than then. Uh, and then most recently, uh, a lot of the uh, activism that's been mobilized uh you know through through the the parkland students but also in other you know march for our lives and uh, the women's march and all these types of things um what's what's that been like because uh, ha- have you noticed a marked market change in the last few years um i don't know some market change uh there i think there's been a change but i think there's always issues so yeah i think maybe issues are more in the, the forefront of people's mind in fact i think maybe there's there's a lack of willingness for students to talk about issues for fear that they might upset somebody. Mm. Um, I, you know, try to venture out into those danger zone areas right. uh, cautiously, but I like to, you know, go uh, go out there. And uh, but so I think sometimes students don't want to talk about it at all because of, of they're worried about what other people will will, will think, and they don't think it's it's not worth um, the the the, the efforts or they're not worth the, the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say though that um, I think there is. So, I think that sometimes um, I want to push students there, and I want students. Well, I guess I I want I always want students for me to come back to critical thinking, mm-hmm. and so I I am fairly confident. I mean, some things I will avoid just because I don't want to do it, but I always am able to say, let's look 
make an argument for this, right? Mm -hmm. So, and so, and most of the classes that I teach, I do a small session on critical thinking. We talk a little bit about fallacies and mm -hmm. a little bit about argument structure. And so I can say like, this is clearly an ad hominem attack. This is not like, you're not talking about the issue. You're talking about, you know, the person. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, at least I, I have a false sense of security, but I have some sense of security that I can, I can get them back to using critical thinking skills to analyze any argument and yeah. any position so that I am not seen as having a bias one way or the other and the students aren't getting off, off track. Now that's a challenge because um, students don't always like to stop and think about what they're saying. They like to just say things, but um, that's really one of my goals in any class to get students to stop and think about what they're saying and why they're saying it. And so whether we're talking about, um, uh, you know, presidential politics uh, or the media or even the, the, the gun debate, right. um, I'm okay with that as long as they're willing to kind of stop and reflect and, and apply some critical thinking to the issue at hand. Yeah. And in many ways, it sounds like part of your, part of the way you're thinking of your job is you want to provide an environment where those types of conversations, that kind of discourse can happen, right? Because you're trying to model how to moderate that discourse and how to sort of push the conversation a little to be a little more critical maybe than it would have been had they not been in your class. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so again, a lot of my students, a lot of classes I teach aren't, aren't technically philosophy classes, and even the philosophy classes, a lot of the students aren't going to go into a career in philosophy. Um, and even a lot of my philosophy majors are not going to remember a lot of the content of philosophy if they go onto a different, you know, career. Very few go on to grad school for philosophy. Right. Um, but I want them to take the kind of critical thinking, analytical skills that you are taught in any philosophy class mm -hmm. with them in whatever, in their personal lives and then whatever they do that they, that exactly, they take those skills and can have better discussions and more productive discussions with others out in the world. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, particularly when you start talking about the ethical side, how that relates to technology, uh, automation, artificial intelligence, and uh, the future of work. Uh, so it wouldn't be a, a trending in, ed in education conversation without talking about robots mm -hmm. and, uh, and automation. But um, do you have any thoughts about that? Because like one of the one of the themes I've seen is that as more and more automation happens, uh, one of the fields that that's showing an increasing need is uh, ethicists and mm -hmm. how we actually need more people who can understand how to think critically and then also do some um, ethical design principles to mm -hmm. prevent, bi pre prevent bias and uh, sort of encourage, you know, positive use of mm -hmm. technology. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, uh, on that whole kettle of fish? Um, sure. Yes, I do. Um, so and there's a lot of interesting ethical questions when it comes to technology in general or robots or, or AI. Um, and I think, I think, Philosophers represent a range of views on this. Uh, there are some philosophers that are very much, I think, excited about different uh, advancements in technology and AI, and some that think it's the end of the world, mm -hmm. um, and then some that think, well, it matters what how we how we how we do it. Um, and I guess the biggest question for me about really any technology uh, um, is about agency. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes people just think, oh, well, we have self-driving cars and like, you know, it gets into an accident. Like, and I think like, you know, well, who's to blame? Who's the agent, right? Or AI, when AI, like, you know, when robots start doing things and I'm like, as long as it's a programmer and then people say, well, the, the program can kind of be a self-replicating whatever. And yeah. I still think, but somebody designed that program and they are in some sense, it's an extension of them. Right. Um, and again, that might be an old fashioned view, but I think the question of agency and moral culpability is still the question uh, that uh, uh, people in technology need to take seriously. I think that they don't always do that. Yeah, well, especially because the algorithms frequently are somewhat self-aware, not to get all Skynet, but like the idea that like there's not really someone tweaking an algorithm, it's more that someone designed the algorithm to self-regulate and then it's just out there in the wild and that's the part that I find, I mean, obviously you can attribute the blame to the designer, but the designer doesn't even know, like, like even the ethics, it's almost like first do no harm. Like if you release something into the world that you're not actually going to understand where the algorithm might go, like you probably shouldn't release it. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) But lots of times, like those genies are literally I mean, they're not literally genies and they're not literally out of the bottle. So I take all of what I was going to say <laughs> yes. back, but like those genies are out of the bottles. You know I mean? Like, like a lot of these algorithms are out there and like, we're asking, we're asking uh, the CEOs to self-regulate at least thus far. And uh, unless you're in the European union, in which case they, they have like stricter data privacy rules. But, but even then, like, you know, it's almost like the expecting ethical behavior from uh, a tech startup that's really been designed around a profit motive is, is, is kind of an interesting, uh, there's some interesting dilemmas emerging, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and I would say to the, I mean, the, the genie, the most dangerous genie is not out of the bottle yet. I don't think unless no, unless, I don't know, unless Elon <laughs> Musk created a robot that we don't that we don't know about you've seen the robot dogs right you've seen you've seen uh, boston dynamics robot dogs i'll show them <laughs> whenever i see robots they're like laughable like oh, i don't know and elon's making a robot dragon or so he said on twitter so yeah, and a flamethrower yeah, yeah. yeah you're gonna launch it in, into, into space though too <laughs> like... yeah in the back of a tesla yeah. <laughs> um but so whether or not so but i i take your your point that some things have already happened so i guess my point would be that technology companies people who work for them need to think about the ethical ramifications as they're making things and before they're making things and yeah. they and to say well that's an unforeseen consequence is not a legitimate excuse to me mm-hmm. um, or to not to not think about it right um, you need to think about and either you know, it shouldn't and the people say well that's going to you know put a freeze on innovative thinking and i don't want it to do that but if it slows down innovative thinking i think that's a fine thing i think it's mm-hmm. not Technology should not just be driven because we can do it, right? The question, what we can do, what we ought to do is a question that people in technology need to think about more. I don't think they think about it. I think Dylan Jones don't think about it enough. People in technology ought to think about that question more. What, what could possibly happen with this? Right. Um, You know, sometimes it's obvious that it shouldn't be done. Sometimes it's not obvious, but you still, I think, need to slow down. Right. Uh, And that's not something that tech entrepreneurs are very good at. Exactly. Yeah. Um, quick, uh, quick topic just to dig into briefly. Uh, I know you, maybe we'll come back to it in a later show, but, uh, you mentioned that you spent some of your time adjuncting. Uh, yes. so one of the, one of the topics, uh, that we're interested around teachers is kind of advocacy for people who are passionate about teaching. Uh-huh. And, um, 
one angle when we talk to K-12 is more the concept of teacher pay for, and, uh, you know, states have had more teacher walkouts lately yeah. to try to get uh, more competitive pay for teachers. Um, a corollary, although not a direct analogy, uh, I think in higher ed is around adjuncts and mm. the use of adjuncts. Um, any thoughts on that? Uh, just having been an adjunct and then having uh, sort of seen the uh, the world from that perspective and some of the challenges uh, around uh, sort of the economics of being a teacher. Mm. Um, any any thoughts? Yeah, sure. Um, there are. So the the overall structure and the idea of adjuncts is, I think, okay in and of itself. It's kind of like it could be seen as a paid internship mm -hmm. uh, in some ways. You go to grad school and you become now. Some if you go to a big enough university, you can become an adjunct or a teacher at the university that you that you go to. I went to a university that didn't really have that, so I had to go out on my own and get an adjuncting job. And while you're in grad school, so as an internship for a couple of years, I think it's it's a fine model, and the pay is not good, but you know, that's, that's fine. The problem is that schools become reliant upon adjuncting and people have to put together careers as an adjunct and they work at three or four different universities teaching, you know, two or three classes at each, at each place. And this, that's not tenable. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm in an interesting position because I'm actually a, a, a well, I guess I'm a senior lecturer, mm -hmm. uh, which is a non-tenure track position. Uh, and I'm quite satisfied with it. I'm quite, I'm quite happy. Uh, I don't have the same job security as somebody with tenure does, but I have a, I have a fair amount. Um, and there aren't certain expectations on me that there are on other tenures. There's different ones. Yep. Uh, and I'm comfortable with that. But the goal for almost everybody in higher ed is to get tenure. Right. Uh, and I think that's a bad, a bad model. Yep. Um, and again, as someone, you know, who had a fairly securely middle to upper middle class upbringing because my dad had tenure as a university professor. Right. It's strange for me to say this, but I think the model of tenure, it, it's the focus of too, it's, it's too much focus. Mm -hmm. um, and all of the money goes into research, even in the humanities. Human universities want to get tenure track professors who can do research, who can publish in a couple of important journals. Right. That, to be honest, very few people are actually going to read. Right. Um, I'm much more interested in teaching, having more focus on teaching and engagement with the um, community. And so, from from a financial stand, stand standpoint, I think more so more resources need to be put into education in general. There's been a, a long, steady decline in the amount of money that goes into uh, higher ed at the at the state level. Mm -hmm. Um, public universities a generation or, or, or two ago used to be extremely affordable and now oftentimes they're as much as private in institutions. Yep. Um, and so I think that it's, it's a, a problem about more resources and then where those resources, resources go. Um, right. They often go to new buildings and a certain kind of professor. Right. Uh, and I think more money should be given to and more... Mm, it should be it should be more of a a possible career path to be someone who's teaching at the college level who's actually primarily concerned with teaching, mm -hmm. and there are some efforts to do that. Uh, I think, and that's again not to say that people who have tenure don't care about teaching; they're often excellent teachers. I thought but I thought that might have been your your Stephen A. Smith take. I thought I thought I thought you were spitting fire right there, but no, <laughs> you're, you're, you're just talking about from your you're speaking your truth. Yes. Um, 
I'm just, I'm just I, it is just people that I know that are, when people go up for tenure, it's consuming, it's all consuming. And they, they have to worry so much about publishing right uh, that it, it has to become their 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 focus and I, and i guess there's a related problem on the other side too where you know obviously you know good problem to have but but motivating once you're once you've received tenure you might have another 20 30 years in your career you know it was such a such a goal to accomplish and then once mm-hmm. you accomplish that goal you have to obviously there's new books to write or whatever but you yeah, know, like, and in in my experience with people, that that's actually not a problem. Uh, people, I think there is there was an older generation that maybe got tenure and maybe less it on their laurels a bit. Um, I think what's actually happened is that people have to publish so soon now because I mean the, the rules for a tenure a generation ago or two was was not publish a book in your first three four four years, and now it kind of is, which is mm-hmm. nuts, I think. But mm-hmm. uh, so people just get into, it. and whether it's people being competitive or or just they're used to like that's what they're then used to, and so everyone that I know that got has gotten tenure has put out their second book in less time. Oh, for sure. Um, I I mean those those folks in fifteen years is more my point. Uh, like, I mean, when you're, when, when you're getting yeah. when you're getting later on in your career, yeah, uh, you know, like early on, you still got the fire in the belly. Later, yeah. on, you still have the tenure. Okay, uh, you know, so like, and that's that's been my perception, like, because like there is a level to which like there's your generative years, and then there's teaching is actually your point about teaching is is really a good one too. I think as folks get older, um, I think there's an increasing desire to teach. Like you kind of mm-hmm. wanna you want to pass what you've learned on to, to future generations. In many ways, that's part of your legacy. And obviously some, some folks can get published mm-hmm. but to your point. Like, I think you can reach more people by teaching, you know, yeah. in a more personal, you know, directly relevant way. Um, yeah. I, I, I think so. I think so too. I think it's also difficult in that depending on, and if you go into education, you learn how to become a teacher, but in other disciplines, you don't really get training on how to be a teacher. A uh, so you kind of learn on uh, the uh, the fly, and it, mm-hmm. hopefully, at some point, teachers get interested in uh, passing on knowledge that way. I know that that's always been something that's driven that's driven me. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, because uh, that's one thing we do do at Kaplan is like we actually train our teachers. Like we spend a little bit of time with like a. That's one of our, our 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 assets is the ability to train a lot of teachers to kind of teach a certain way and. Um, a lot of it winds up being a little more behavioral too, which is, uh, which is interesting. Like, I don't know how much, uh, among university professors, there is sort of uh, an opportunity to kind of like try to break down with some depth, the tactics that are proving most effective in your classrooms and, uh, you know, how to kind of foster that type of culture. Um, seems like the direction you're almost taking in some ways by, by, by focusing on the, the importance of teaching you know, can you find a community then of lecturers and people who are passionate about uh, really the teaching side as, as their main way of generating value? You know, do, do those folks get together and, and how do we, you know, cross pollinate ideas about uh, good teaching practice? Yeah. And so there are definitely uh, people that do that. There's a Center for Teaching and Learning at UNC Charlotte and the most universities have something, something like that. Uh, and those are effective up to a point. There is issues of disciplinarity um, 
in the sense that what's effective for a class in the natural or social sciences might not be effective in it. Uh, I thought I thought you meant whether you're like, uh, you know, uh, go to timeout versus uh, I'm going to take your uh, your smartphone away. You meant discipline, which discipline you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. That's how I was talking about indisciplinarity. Right. Although that's always an issue too. Um, sure. hey, can you, can you, ha- can you, can you have coffee in class? Um, like, yeah. Well, see, I, my rule is whatever I can do, the students can do. So <laughs> I bring, uh, I don't, sometimes I'm always a little shocked. Uh, here's a little bit of a tangent. When the students come in with like, you know, a fresh hot meal, they got like, you know, like a, a rice bowl and it's like yeah. the whole class can smell that i'm not sure they all appreciate that right right um, but like bringing in a bottle of water or a soda like i'm gonna do that you know so right. i don't you know right um, yeah if, or, if, or maybe like a maybe a chianti for you and uh that's a little different too okay, that's, that's far see different. i just i was just testing yeah um that i would i would probably stop st- stop stop that yeah. but disciplinarity you were saying like just the way you teach one discipline versus <laughs> yeah and uh, so yeah when we have these these are kind of so i think it's important to have interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary you know ideas but sometimes it really is and just like the language the language that you were just using i was like those are interesting words. I'm not sure exactly what all of them mean. Yeah. Uh, and I think sometimes I do go to these, whatever they are, the workshops, and I can bring in some of that language and understand what it means, but I can't bring all of it in. And sometimes it just right. doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. And sometimes I think it's from cross purposes. And so I try to be open about it without being too defensive of my territory, but I feel like everyone's a little defensive of their, of their disciplinary territory. Yeah. Um, uh, so that, but but there are the, there always are, and there should be efforts to focus on teaching. Yeah, uh, but and teaching that, in philosophy, in particular, is uh, and, and there actually is um, an organization that deals specifically with that that focuses on teaching in philosophy. Yeah, and I imagine like interdisciplinary teaching too, because like philosophy sits at points of intersection with just about every other discipline, yes. you know, probably more so than any other discipline. And that, you know, yeah. there's a philosophy of science, there's a philosophy of exactly. technology or whatever. Um, yeah, th- uh, this has been a, this has been a great conversation. Dan, uh, do you have uh, any, uh, any final th- questions? I for, do uh, have one more for Mark. We've talked uh, a few times here on the show about the gig economy and workforce readiness. And Mark, you made mention at the top about your uh, discipline philosophy, not necessarily being one that, all students see as necessary to graduate and make money, right? So in the mm-hmm. end, we're, we're all trying to move forward in, in getting our careers. As more and more focus comes on workforce readiness and on getting a job uh, once you're done with college, is that a bigger challenge for you? Has that become like even more of an impediment to who's taking your class and how you're going about teaching? Or does the interdisciplinary uh, nature of what you're just talking about allow a little bit more uh, connected tissue to, to the other courses that uh, kids are taking? Okay, so um, I will. Try, that's a great question. I will try to take too much time with my answer. There's a couple of things I wanna I wanna say. Um, so yes, it is a, definitely a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge to, to tell people what they can use philosophy for. And so, like I said, very few people go on to grad school in philosophy, which is kind of a good thing. There's not a lot of jobs teaching philosophy out there. Um, so I'm all, and so I've I just I'm, I've just served six years as undergraduate coordinator in the philosophy uh, department, and one of my tasks was to figure out so on both ends on recruitment and on what they're going to do afterwards um so recruitment is a big problem because most students don't take philosophy in high school so they already don't see it as something that's really important in some sense so one of the things i've been doing is actually trying to reach out to high schools uh that have ib programs that teach philosophy anyone that 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 don't 
and I've actually had some of my students go out and give lesson plans in those to kind of let students know in high school that it's an option. Now, once they get there, they decide to take philosophy, I have to try to explain what they can do with it. Some of them are going to go into grad school. Um, a lot of them are going to go into law school. So it's been kind of noted that if you study philosophy, you do demonstrably better on the, the, the LSATs. In fact, this is something I could probably talk to you guys more about off the air, about how much on most standardized tests, there are people that say that philosophy, studying philosophy helps you on pretty much across uh, um, uh, the board. But LSATs are definitely one of them. So a lot of people who are interested in going to, to law school yep. become philosophy majors or double majors. They'll become like, you know, political science double major with um, philosophy. Then after that, students do a whole range of, of, of things. And I've been trying to figure out, I think the two big things they go into is the nonprofit world mm -hmm. and to some degree, um, uh, uh, education. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested more in finding out about how to get students into um, education from a philosophy degree. I think that it definitely makes sense, mm -hmm. uh, but kind of what ways, what do they have to, to kind of do? Like, what can they get degrees, licensure, and all that kind of stuff? And it seems like mm -hmm. um, test prep might be actually an interesting uh, venue for them. Yeah. So those are the students I think are going to do something specifically with philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're a philosophy major, I'm going to look at those four things. Or if you already know what you wanted, what you want to do when you're taking philosophy, philosophy is just going to help you pr um, pursue that. For the students who are not majoring in philosophy, it's not my job to get them to a career, but I want to instill in them some of those critical thinking skills that we were talking about in whatever they they do, mm -hmm. uh, that they can be more philosophical uh, in whatever they do. But when it comes to you know careers, it is a, a challenge. I want to guide people into one of those couple areas, uh, or or work them individually. Because we've had people that go. I guess another one is journalism. I've thought more and more about philosophers going into journalism. Sure, but. Um, that's that's kind of an untapped uh, territory um, for uh, for me. We've had people do, you know, go into environmental science, but they were philosophy majors, and so that informed them in some way. Sure. Um, so it's yeah, it's it is a challenge, and something that I'm always talking to students about, um, and I'm trying to figure out where and how to guide them into their careers because um, I do think philosophy can be helpful in a number of different careers. Thanks again to Mark Sanders for joining us here on the podcast. If you so choose, you can find him on Twitter, citizen underscore Sanders, uh, talking about the world of education and his viewpoint. Uh, a great guest here and a great conversation, a wide-ranging one, and that's what we really appreciate here on Trending in Education, talking to educators, talking to teachers, and getting their viewpoint on where the world of education is now and where we are headed uh, in the future. Hopefully we'll talk to Mark again in the future. Celebrating teacher appreciation week celebrating national teacher day back on tuesday has been so much fun uh, we hope to have uh, many more interviews over the next couple of weeks with teachers there will be extras they'll be part of our regular episodes on tuesdays uh, but we want to bring you closer uh, to some of the great teachers that we know and even get closer ourselves to teachers that we have yet to meet so look forward to that in the future here on trending in education if you are not yet subscribed you can do so over on podbean.com you can also do so on itunes or the stitcher app uh, or google play or any place that you listen to podcasts if you use an app that we are not on please let me know over on twitter at trending and ed or on facebook at trending and ed as well or check us out at trending or trending in education.com with that said thanks so much for listening to trending in education